And so with that, let's pray. We will uh, get into our passage today. Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. We thank you for this, uh, this letter to the Hebrews. Um, we don't know who wrote it. We don't really know who it went to, but it is packed with information and doctrine and, and things that are difficult to understand. And Father, as we come to the, the very end of this letter, we reach very practical things um, that flow from doctrine. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us um, to understand what is said in this passage, that you would give us um, wisdom and knowing applications uh, for our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to worship you with our lives, to honor you um, with all that we are. We are grateful, Lord, for this day, and it's in Christ's good name we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are, sh- for we are sure that we have good, a good conscience, desiring c- to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you sooner. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us as we work through this passage, and it's in Jesus's good name we pray. Amen. So I've had a a great week. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Um, We have a couple that we've never met that about eight years ago um, started sending us, they'd send us an email about a week or two before Thanksgiving offering us a timeshare down at the beach, and so We've learned to say yes and accept their gracious gift. We, have, we really don't know who they are. They, there's a connection through Anna's parents. And so as our family grows, you know, we, 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 we lug up everything. I always hope, like, oh, please let there be a lower room available. But I, we got the, the third-story room, so I've got to lug all. I'm the Sherpa, so I lug all the stuff up and lug it down. And, and uh, so Monday we go to check-in. I lug everything up, and Anna's like, well, wh- we want to go to the beach. I'm like, well, you go to the beach. I'll, I'll study, and I'll, I'll do some work, and I'm just like trying to stretch it out from everything. I sit down, and in the, in the midst of this, I, the first thing I read on this passage, I forget who it was, um, but, I, but I read this little illustration uh, concerning the section that we're in in Hebrews, and the author writes this. Um, one of the phenomena that all parents eventually face is the experience of the empty nest. That is the time when all the children move away from home, and suddenly all is quiet. Those things that used to consume your time are no longer upon you. When you clean a room, it doesn't spontaneously get messy again. Cookies don't magically disappear. You no longer need to attend all the ball games and performances and art shows and endless activities. You no longer need to correct the grammar of your children Teaching times and training times are a thing of the past. Uh, The gas in your car lasts a bit longer. The food in your pantry lasts a bit longer. 
the clothing budget reduces. This event is so traumatic for many that it has a name, the empty nest syndrome. When this happens, many adults lose their way. So much of their life has been caught up with their children that they just don't know what to do with themselves. Some find themselves married to a complete stranger and end up divorcing. Others fall into depression because they have lost purpose in life. What empty nesters need is another purpose in life. Apart from their growing children, something is gone. They need to fill the vacuum with something else. And I I read that and I, I was sort of, like after lugging up everything, I like suddenly had the memory of Joel when I walked into the church with little Ellie as a baby. Like she was like three days old and I carried her in here and I was up front and I was worshiping, holding this sweet little baby and Joel comes up with tears coming down his eyes. And I was thinking he was gonna say, oh, she's so beautiful, she's so sweet, it's moving. He looked at her and he said, she's gone already. I'm like, Joel, I just, we just like, we just got her home like three days ago. Joel had married off his daughter that weekend. He's like, she's gone. She's gone before you even know it. It's like that. She's gone. And uh, so I read that, and I'm like, okay, I need to appreciate lugging up all the stuff and enjoying this time. And, and, uh, but the, the, the reason that he tied it into this passage, which I thought was interesting, is he identified these Jewish followers of Christ to be in this similar situation while we don't know much about the recipients of the letter, we, we, we do know that it was written during the time when the temple in Jerusalem was still operational. It was still up and running. It was still uh, going through the sacrifices, the traditions. All of, all of, everything was still in play. And these followers who had come to know Jesus as their Savior faced the strain of walking away from their lives every Thing they'd known, their, uh, their community, um, their traditions, all of the things that consumed and really guided their lives. And now that they'd followed Christ, the author has reassured us or them throughout this letter that Christ's work on the cross was sufficient. The sacrifice was complete. It was once and for all. There was no longer a need for the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system pointed them to Jesus. And now that Jesus has come and he's made the, the price or made the sacrifice on the cross uh, and was seated at the right hand of the Father, there was nothing for them to do or there, there was no longer the need for them to go to the temple, to go through the rituals. And so I think part of their struggle as the persecution came is like, well, what do we do? What does life with God look like? And so in our passage today, or really what we ended with last week, is in chapter 13, there's so much here. And he says there's still a sacrifice to be offered. There's still something for you to do. Remember verse 15, it said, Through him then, through Jesus alone, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, the sacrifice was complete. He is alive and working. And through him, we're told, let us continually... Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And so we're, we're commanded that there is still this place for an offering. Now, the offering doesn't look the same. It's this offering of praise. And as I hope you've been thinking about this or contemplating this, what, is, what does it mean to offer up a sacrifice of praise? Does that, for me, mean, well, I'm a terrible singer, and so I'm going to come and I'm going to sing, and I'm going to belt out my 
lack of rhythm and tone and whatever else is needed in singing a song? Well, yeah, that's part of it. But it's so much more than just singing or music. Music is a component of worship, but worship is all of our lives. And in verse 15, he expands on this praise to God. He says, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And so the foundation of this worship is is grounded in a heart of thankfulness or gratitude. Namely, Jesus has died for you so that you might live, and that should result, first and foremost, a heart of gratitude. Um, I've really enjoyed Thanksgiving. I mean, I always enjoy Thanksgiving. The food is great. The, I, I love uh, just the, the, uh, the atmosphere, the, the attitude of gratitude, you know, they say, the, that, that on Facebook I can go there and my feed is just filled with people kind of saying just thankful things. It's just like encouraging. Um, I, I wish it would continue throughout the year. One of the things I read was Matthew Henry this week, and he said this, Thanksgiving is good, but thanks living is better. I thought that was wonderful. That we as Christians are called to live thankful lives. That living a thankful life is actually sacrificial worship. It's not just when everything is going great in your life. It's being able to praise God and to thank him in the midst of difficult times, like Job, I think of, who everything was taken from him, his, his riches, his family, his children, everything. And yet he responded, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we worship him through our lives, through this, this gratefulness. He continues here and he says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now this last phrase, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So, so the sacrifices he's speaking of, um, we, we see that there's uh, praising, sacrificial praise, which is thankfulness from your lips. There's um, doing good, and they're sharing. And we're told that by doing these things, by praising God in this way, we're told that he's pleased. Now, it, there are some in our culture, um, many in our culture, say an atheist, an agnostic, those that aren't necessarily religious in nature. Most of those people I've found that in their time of need are okay with you saying, hey, can I pray for you? Or can I do this? They're they're open to that. Maybe they're even open in, in speaking about God in like general terms, like a, a cosmic force or energy that there's something greater out there, but it's sort of like this blob of uh, gobbledygook. I don't know if that's a word, but just there's something beyond me, but yeah, it's like the AA's version of God, you know, kind of like there's something and we're okay with that. It's distant from me. My life doesn't affect that, and that energy doesn't have anything to do with me. But when I read, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased, this is one place, and there's places all through the Bible where we see the personhood of God, that God has personality, that how we live our lives affects God's emotions and how he feels that you can live your life in a way that God is pleased with you right here. We see in Ephesians 5.18 that there's ways that you can live your life that we're told that you can grieve God. 
And so right away, with this instruction, we're, we're encouraged that how you live your life, and you should live your life in a way that pleases God. And he says, doing good. For some reason this week, I've had the phrase uh, that we should be a bunch of do-gooders in our mind. It sounded really good to me, if I can continue with that word good. Then it started to dawn on me that phrase, do-gooders, is actually a derogatory statement. Like, how did that happen? Like, how did, oh, you're such a do-gooder. That means that's a derogatory statement that you're like naive, uh, that you're, you think the best of people. I tried to Google the origin of it. I, it seems like the first time it was like in the 1500s it came up. I don't know when uh, the phrase, when it, like why or how, and why is it a bad thing to be a do-gooder? The Bible commands us we should be do-gooders. We should go about doing good. We're also told to share. Um, on Friday, after Thanksgiving, we went to lunch. And I felt like I was pretty full from the last four days of binging. And so I looked at Grace, and I'm like, hey, how about we share a club sandwich? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'd be fine sharing a club sandwich. So we, we, they, we told them they brought our meal on two different plates. So I had half the sandwich and half the fries. Apparently, when I started eating, I was okay with eating. And I was like, I, like, I ate all my fries. I ate all my sandwich. I'm like, I can still eat some more. Like, they really thought I should have had both. They thought that was the right portion. So I, I reach over to Grace's plate, and I put my finger on her fry. And I see a look in her eyes. <laughs> And I just sort of smiled, and I look at her, and I say, you never touch another man's fries. I get it. (laughs) And I'm not saying this to make fun of Grace. I'm saying I saw myself in her, and I immediately backed away because there's, there's, there's something territorial within me about my French fries. They're not, they're not community. I, I, I don't know why, I don't know why it is that within me, there's not this nature to share, um, the, the, the point in this, he says, do good and share. And, and really, this is the whole context. If we're to back up to, to verse 1. Verse 1, we read, let the love of the brethren continue. Verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality. Verse 3, remember those in prison. Verse 5, do not love money. All of these carry the implication of sharing. All of those things require you to share that of yourself uh, financially, emotionally, like your time. All of this stuff requires you to share with others, and we're instructed to do this. And so at the end, when he says, God is pleased when you offer a sacrifice to him through mouths that are thankful, through actions that are doing good, through sharing. And I would love to narrow this down for us to say, okay, this is doing good. Here's a checklist of things that you can go through in your life. Sharing, here's a checklist of things that you can do. But I can't narrow what God has cast a very wide net on. He's cast this net. Do not neglect doing good and sharing. So all I can ask you is that you go about your day praying. Lord, help me to see opportunities to do good. Help me to see opportunities that you're placing before me that I can do something good. 
and give me an opportunity to share. I, um, I saw Isaac earlier when I was worshiping, and a memory came up. I don't know, is Isaac in here if I'm going to talk about it? There he, no, that's not Isaac, that's James. Uh, way back in the back, he's hiding now in the shadows because he knows. But I remember like a year ago or so, I get a call from Isaac at like 10 o'clock, and I think, oh, no, this isn't good. Like, th- this, isn't, this isn't, like, he doesn't call me, and then he calls me at 10 o'clock, and he calls me. I'm like, hey, do you have jumper cables? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you sure I do? And he's like, I'm on the grade. I saw a car that was broken down on the side of the road, so I stopped. And I just remember being so blessed by, like, Isaac. And it came up, like, this is like a picture of doing good. Like, how easy would it to be go by, oh, that person's probably an axe murderer, and I don't want to stop because. But he stops, and he's like, I need jumper cables. So he calls me, and he, like, I go down, and I give him the jumper cables to start. It was a, there's all sorts of, be, be do-gooders. Share, trust God to provide for you. If somebody takes your French fry, God will provide more French fries for you. Like that, that's, maybe that's for me, that I'm working on this French fry sharing. I've, I know I've shared in the past, this has been a struggle for me in my marriage, that Anna thinks my fries are her fries, and I think my fries are my fries. And, and so I've, I'm, I'm still working. I've made some progress. Uh, I passed it on to my children. Um, so this all is in the attitude of, of, of worship. Gratitude, giving thanks to God. The giving thanks to God allows us then to do good and then to share. And now in verse 17, we come to this this passage that I would never preach on on my own. I would never, ever, ever come to this verse and say, I'm going to preach on this on a Sunday. It's a verse that is very deeply ingrained in my heart. But because we're going through Hebrews, we come to this verse. And we read, obey your leaders and submit to them. And so, how to cover this? Um, First and foremost, we're talking about spiritual leaders. We're talking about the concept of of elders, pastors, those that lead the church. Within chapter 3, this word leaders is used a couple of times. We saw it in verse 13.7. Remember those leaders um, that taught you the word of God, that their lives were an example to you. Here we see uh, more in the present tense, obey your leaders and submit to them. And then down in the benediction, we see leaders come up a third time. And so we're told here to obey our leaders and to submit to them. Um, in trying to ease into this water, and, I, and we're going to cover it briefly, mainly because in the new year, we're going to start First Timothy and, and really examine a, uh, an epistle that, that is the, really one of the, the main letters in the Bible that helps us as a church to know how we're supposed to operate as a church. But so I want to point out is that um, this verse is grounded in the words of Christ, um, mainly that the church is something that he created. Um, this is a church. It's not the building. This is us as people. And so when they read this or when they receive this, obey your leaders, this idea starts back in Matthew 16. Um, we're not going to go there, but uh, just, to re- just to remind you of the story, Jesus had taken the disciples to the very northern part of, of Israel, to Caesarea Philippi. And if you have been to Israel or you're planning on going, we will go to this location. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is one of the springs that feeds the Jordan River. It's a beautiful spring and at the, where, where it comes out of the earth, it backs up into this huge cliff. 
And within the cliff, there's carvings and there's sort of places where uh, there were idols. It was a, a main place of I- idolatry. Um, the people, because water is so valuable in the desert, they believed that the gods were in the under earth, uh, down below, and they were the ones bringing up the water. And so they would worship these false gods. It's a very strange place for Jesus to take his disciples, but he takes them all up there in the midst, in the, 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 the epicenter of idolatry. And there would have been all kinds of people there. And in the midst of these crowds, he pulls his disciples aside and he says, hey, who do, who do the people say that I am? And so they start wrapping off a bunch of uh, names of people or you know, prophets. Some say you're Elijah, some say this, and they kind of go through and Jesus then looks at them and he says, but hey, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter responds and he says, uh, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right, Peter. And upon that, what I would say or believe is most of the evangelical church is that, that it's his proclamation, upon that proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, that he would build his church, future tense. And so Jesus is the one who created this, this organization that we're a part of, the church. And as history sort of unfolded at Pentecost, which is Acts chapter 2, we see that the church is formed then we see the church developed. We see the epistles. There's pastoral letters, uh, the t- First and Second Timothy, Titus, um, a-, a bunch of the letters of the New Testament help us to understand how this organization is to be run. And within that organization, there's a structure. And he, God has raised up men to be pastors or elders overseeing the church. And so within this context, The writer of this says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Do things that nobody in our culture likes to do. Um, Which is why it makes it so uncomfortable sort of entering into this because I understand I'm an elder, I'm a pastor over this church and here it is. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Um, I think the first thing that I want to point out before we get into it is the assumption is that there's a connectedness to the local church. We, we live in the world, this world where people sort of drift here and there, kind of pop into churches, pop out of churches, bounce around to churches. And, and so the first thing that stands out to me is that the, the church, we, we already saw it back in Hebrews chapter 10, that there, there's a sort of a commitment, this covenant that believers are to be connected to the local church, the body of Christ, um, I want to say that this, this command to obey your leaders and submit to them isn't a blind obedience. I don't know if you guys remember the story in, in Acts about the Bereans. Anybody remember that story, Bereans? What were they known for? They were known for searching the scriptures. Now, who were they, who were they checking out? They were checking out Paul the Apostle. So Paul the Apostle comes through. He tells him a bunch of stuff. He goes away. The brain says, well, we know that's the Apostle Paul. He's going to write most of the New Testament. <laughs> Let's check him out. And so they recognize that the authority of the apostles, the authority of elders is limited to the scope of the scriptures. Um, there are some men who've taken this passage from a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
authoritarian, um, uh, the word's escaping me, Taking this passage where the elder role or the pastoral role is uh, like a dictatorship. And and that's not at all what this is saying. Um, I believe what's saying, what what this verse is sort of indicating is that this idea of obeying and submitting to their leadership, their teaching of the word of God, because they're trying to convey sort of sympathy, empathy, empathy, I always get those two words mixed up, but I think both can apply here. To understand the weight of the spiritual leaders that have been placed over you and the role. Because the second half of this verse is actually, it's terrifying. It, um, it is not a self-serving verse. Obey your leaders and submit to them. This, this, this is not self-serving. It's actually, uh, it keeps me up at night. It's, it's concerning to me. Because look what the second half says. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so there's three things on this uh, spiritual leadership. But whatever church you find yourself, if you're visiting, you're passing through, you're checking out church, whatever, whatever church you go to, there's a sort of a litmus test that I think that you should look at in a, in a pastor or leader of the church um, n- number one is that there's an accountable leadership. A- and so th- this, this is that I'm accountable for you, not to you. Um, now let me explain that. If I was to say that I was accountable to you, that would be so much easier, like so, so much easier for me if, if it was just to be accountable to you because you guys are all really, really nice. Like, y- y- like really, when people have a gripe against me or something, I get, I, I, it's really like I... Like most of the time in my experience over the last 10 years, it's, it's been very gracious, been very grounded in the word. Um, but, but 90% of it is all very like, oh, thank you, pastor, for the message. Thank you, pastor. Like, thank, like you guys are all very kind, loving, gracious, uh, really a joy to be a pastor here. And so if I just took this as like, oh, I'm just accountable to you, that would be super easy. Like I, 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 my professional career, I was raised with a, a profession that you were accountable to each other and the standard was very, very high and any slip up, you were basically booted from the community. And so for me to be accountable to church, I, it's not a big deal in my mind. I, I, I could handle that. But what this says is I'm accountable to God. And it's war. It's, I'm not just accountable to God for how I function. I'm accountable to God for your soul's. Which that's a dreadful thing. Like like I, like standing before God for my own life and my own actions that that's concerning enough. But I'm gonna have to give an account for not only my life but for those that I was entrusted to shepherd while I was serving as an elder of His church. That's why James three one says, "Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing." that as such we will incur stricter judgment. There is a warning against those that are in this role of leading and shepherding the body of Christ. Which I think leads to a second point. I think that if you go to a church, you should see a pastor, elder, leadership team that is uh, accountable to God. They understand that. Which I think that this brings out passion. So, there should be a passion to what you're doing. If you'll turn with me over to Acts chapter 20, verses 20 through 20, 32. 
So Acts 20, verses 28 through 32. This is one of my favorite um, sections in Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. No, no, yeah, Acts, Roman. I'll get there. Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, Acts. I'm trying to think and talk. And <clears throat> Okay, so... In Acts chapter 20, this is, what, this is a great little, like, if this was a movie, I would love this. If they do the book of Acts into, like, a Hollywood production, this would be my favorite scene. So just to sort of set the stage for you guys, we're, we're on Paul's third missionary journey. At this point in Paul's life, he knows that he's at the end of his life. He knows that he's eventually going to go to trial. He believes... Um, that he's called to go back to Jerusalem. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he believes he's going to be arrested. There's a prophet that even tells him that he's going to basically, he's going to be bound. He takes his belly, bounds his hands. He says, you're going to basically be turned over and you're going to be executed. And Paul's basically like, God is calling me there. I'm going to go. And so he's wrapping up his tour and he comes to Ephesus, which modern day Turkey. um, And he passes by Ephesus. Ephesus is a town where he spent three years pouring his life into these young men or old men, these men who had become elders that he would send out to basically plant churches. He was there for three years. He essentially rented a room. It was almost like a Bible college or seminary, and he began to train and equip these men to go out to plant churches, to, to lead the churches. He, he was never in a place longer than Ephesus. And so he knows he's at the end of his life, and he's making his way to Jerusalem, he makes a pit stop in Ephesus, or almost in Ephesus. We're told that he passed by Ephesus a little bit, pulled onto the shore, sent people to go get the elders from that region. All these church planters, these pastors, these elders, um, they came and they met with Paul. And so they're on the beach, and Paul's basically saying his goodbyes to them. He, he knows that he's never going to see them again. I know I said verse 28, but I think if we sort of work our way in in verse 24, We can start reading it. And we read in verse 24, But I, that's Paul, do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that I, that all, and behold, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In verse 28, we see this warning, this admonition to these young elders that Paul will never see again. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church, of, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. 
he, he continues. At the very end, down in verse 37, we see uh, the emotion of these men who love Paul, who knew what Paul was telling them. They knew that they'd never see him again because he'd be executed. Read in verse 37, or verse 36 even. This is such a great chapter. When he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So this is the church of Ephesus. They were charged. You can go back to Hebrews. Um, they, They were charged by Paul to keep watch which is what we see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse uh, 17, right? That's uh, this word, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch. Th- this, is, this is a word which we see in the Old Testament dealing with being watchmen. So of a, of a city, there'd be a wall around the city, and on the wall you'd have guardsmen, watchmen, who would watch for dangers, threats, predators, and they would guard the city in the military, I doubt it would ever happen, even though it's probably still law in our military today. I don't think you'd ever see it today, but, I, but, but, but if my memory is right, if, or maybe they just scared us with it, but if you fell asleep on watch, that's something that you could get the capital, capital punishment for, that it was a very serious offense to fall asleep on watch. And so here, uh, the author of Hebrews, we see Paul in Hebrew, uh, Acts chapter 20, that when he gathers the elders, when he gathers those that are entrusted with shepherding the flock, they're to keep watch. Think German Shepherd, that your mission is to guard and to protect this church that you've been entrusted with, these souls that one day you'll stand account for. And so this should bring about passion in the leader. should also bring about humble leadership. Um, so if we have that, it's accountable leadership because you're accountable to God. I, I think point number two, you could say it makes him a humble leader. I, I love that Alistair Begg, one of his quotes that I say a lot, is the best of men are men at best. And so no elder, Christ is the only perfect one. God has used men to lead his church, but they're just men. Like, I'm just, I'm just a guy that loves Jesus, and he's gifted me, and he's called me to this role to teach. But when I look at this, I just think, you know what I think? I think that's not fair. Like, why am I accountable for your all souls? Like, I can deal with my own mistakes, and I'll give an account, and thank God for his grace and his mercy, and thank God for his grace and his mercy as I'm accountable for your all, all your souls. There's great humility that should be in the leadership of the church. It doesn't mean there's not conviction, there's not passion. But the best way that I know how to to protect your souls is to teach this with passion, is to teach this with conviction, to study so that I actually know what it says when I come here and I proclaim and to, to convey it in a way that you can understand. At least that's my prayer. And I was raised in a church where the Bible wasn't taught. And I remember when in my journey of coming to Christ to walk into a church, like I walked into church and, and the guy who spoke, I can't tell you what he said, but I went for eight weeks because I was in boot camp. So I didn't exactly know how long I was. I was in boot camp. 
And I started going to church for the first time. And what the guy said, it made sense. And it wasn't boring. And it was right out of the pages of the Bible. And I was like, I thought the Bible was boring my whole life. But when he teaches, suddenly this obscure book became clear. And there was, it whetted my appetite to learn more. Now, it took a few years for that appetite to get, to get really fulfilled. But my prayer is that when I teach and we go through the scriptures, that it would whet your appetite so that you would want more, that you, it would drive you into the scriptures, that you would go into the word because in the word of God, that's where discipleship happens. It's where he moves amongst us. I can offer you my advice, but my advice really isn't, doesn't mean anything. The scope of my authority, it only is pertained as, as far as the word of God is concerned. I've learned when I meet with people, they might disagree with me. And I'm like, I don't care if you disagree with me. Like, all I'm doing is I'm presenting to you what the scripture says. You can disagree with that, and you can go on with your life. All I'm doing is I'm telling you with a straight face through my years of study. Like, this is what I see the scripture saying. And so you've got to deal with that. And I hope in that, regardless of what they do, that my accountability before God is that I told them what I that he said in his word, if that makes sense. Okay, obey your leaders and submit to them. This should breed uh, empathy, sympathy for your spiritual leaders because they are in a position that you're not in because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And this is accountable leadership. This is passionate leadership. This is humble leadership. Then the verse continues, and it says, Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I, um, I think all I want to say on this point is I want to thank this church. I, um, th- this, this is a passage where pastors could probably beat up their church, but that's not at all my heart. Um, all, all I feel when I read this is I'm super grateful to be the pastor here. Um, that doesn't mean that life is always easy here because life isn't always easy. But over the last 10 years of my being here, I'm, I'm, I'm super just, I'm grateful um, that I'm very much a, a part of the body. Um, I'm not put up on a pedestal. Um, my family's not put up on a pedestal. Like my family and my kids, they're just a part of this church. Um, that my kids can be crazy just like other people's kids. Like kids are kids, and we, they, you, it's part of it. Takes takes a community to kind of raise a child to help them along, and and so I'm I'm super grateful to be here as as the pastor. I, my um, I, I serve as a pastor with joy. I am um, amongst my pastor friends. I I can always sort of tell by their health, like their spiritual health of the church, by asking a simple question is uh, I have some pastor friends, and I won't give names out, but when they're on vacation, hey, what are you doing on vacation? Oh, I'm doing a staycation. I'm staying in San Diego. Cool, are you going to church? No, I'm not going to church. I'm on vacation. And I say, huh, I go to church because I'm a Christian, not because I'm a pastor. And they say, oh, okay, yeah. That's good for you, Gunnar. Don't, don't throw your stuff on me. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not trying to come down on you. I'm, all I'm saying is if I'm on vacation, like technically I'm on vacation right now. But I'm here 
because I'm a believer and I love my body. Like I love, and even if I wasn't preaching, I'd still be at church because I'm a Christian. And I love that my, that my church, our church, is a family. And that my family has the freedom to be a part of the family, just as family. And so I, I thank you for that. And uh, with that, we can move on. We're, we'll get into First Timothy. We'll get at the church. And so when I read this, a, a part I'm uncomfortable with is that I have to give an account for your guys' souls. Um, and so the way I deal with it is, is I really spend a lot of energy studying to prepare for Sundays so that when the Word of God is taught, it's taught in a way that hopefully when I stand before God that he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, and you did well with my flock. And you each will give an account for your own lives. It's not, it's, you're not delegating it to me like, oh, I got off scot-free because Gunnar said that he was giving an account for our souls. So I'll go do it. That's not what it's saying. But I'm grateful. You guys allow me to serve here with joy and, and uh, my, my prayers that God would have me here for the next 20, 30 years, whenever retirement is. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful. He then shifts it. And he, he gives his request. Verse 18, pray for us. I find it interesting that this is really the first time these last few verses in Hebrews. Hebrews starts like, uh, like, uh, like a horse out of the gate just going. I mean, we're, we're in the heavenlies talking about who Jesus is and how God is speaking and that Jesus is greater than angels and the prophets that have come. And I mean, it just comes out as this theological uh, sermon or uh, almost like you're at a seminary classroom dealing with doctrine. I mean, no, no, hello, I'm so-and-so. I'll be teaching the class like Paul, like, hi, the Apostle Paul. I'm writing to you in Galatia. Um, there's none of that. It just, boom, it, 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 it shoots out of the gates, and he just runs. But now at the end, he gets personal. He says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good, uh, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you, all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you sooner. So we learn in these last verses, and next week we'll see more, that whoever's writing this, he knows who he's writing to, and the people who he's writing, they know who he is, and, and there, there was, there was a relationship that was deep he 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 desires to come to see him or he desires to come to see them am i english correct we will see next week down uh down at verse 23 take take notice that our brother timothy has been released with whom if he comes soon i will see you so so whoever's writing this he has a relationship with timothy timothy found himself locked up remember the prisoners those that were incarcerated then, it was an obligation of the church to care for them or whoever to care for them. Timothy was under arrest. He'd been released. The author of this letter hears that Timothy's been released and he's hoping that Timothy will make it to him so that he then can make it to them. So there's this relationship. Uh, there's this almost this covenant amongst them. It wasn't just they were showing up and doing church on Sundays. There, there, was, there was depth. There was relationship. They shared life with each other. And he says to them as, as an elder, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. 
So it's a statement and a prayer. He's saying, I have, my conscience is clear, but continue to pray for my conscience. Can, can pray that I continue to honor God in all that I say and do and how I function, my, my inward life and my external life. Just like back at verse seven, remember? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Those were spiritual leaders that had taught, died. And so now he says, pray for us. I believe my conscience is clear before God. I believe my life is honorably before him. But he recognized all it took was one, one moment to destroy all of his credibility. So he says, pray. Pray that I wouldn't stumble. Pray that I would go the distance. Pray that I would run my race. I'm grateful for your all prayers. Every now and again, I'll get a little note or a little comment saying, hey, I pray for you, Pastor. And it's like, oh, that's really sweet. Like, but I, I say that, but it's like, means a lot. We should be praying for one another. Okay, with that, we can end. When I look at this whole passage, all of chapter 13 deals with this, this, uh, this idea of worship. And in our culture, in our climate, we tend to associate worship with music. But biblical worship, while it carries the idea of singing, yes, it encompasses so much more. And so we're to sacrificially worship God. It comes from the foundation of, a, 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 a foundation of thanksgiving, a, thank, a foundation of gratitude. Um, and you might be thinking, well, what do I have to be thankful for? Well, the whole of Hebrews points to Jesus. That Jesus came, he lived the perfect life, the gospel. That he went to the cross and he made a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was sufficient. It was once and for all. He paid the penalty for your sins, period. And you receive this gift, this action, by simply believing. And if you've received this gift, if your life has been changed, if you've, if you've been transformed by the work of Jesus, your perspective changes. And like Job, whether every, you lose everything or you have everything, you're thankful to God for the relationship that you have, and from that heart of gratitude, it flows out. It enables you to love and to serve others, to do good, to, to share your French fries. I'm preaching to myself right now. <laughs> so with that, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are grateful for a relationship with you. Father, I pray for those uh, here that may not know if they have a relationship with you. Um, we like to complicate things. The gospel is almost too simple for us to, to grasp at times. But Father, we thank you. Way back in the beginning of the, the Bible, we see that uh, you gave a promise that you would send your son. And so, Father, we thank you that we look back to Jesus. Father, help us to comprehend as best that we can grasp that, that Jesus, being God, stepped out of heaven. He came to earth as a baby. He lived his life fully God, fully man, without sin. 
As Hebrews tells us, we have a high priest that we can identify with, that he understands what we go through, our struggles. Father, I pray that you would help those that that haven't come to faith in Christ to to believe. And for those of us who have believed, I, I pray, Father, that your spirit would fill us, that you would... Um, help us to hear your voice. Help us to worship you sacrificially. Not for salvation, but truly in worship, as Paul writes in Romans 12, that we would offer our, our, our bodies, our lives, as a living sacrifice. I pray that you would help us to see um, situations in our life through your eyes, that we would have a grateful heart, that we would be able to give thanks in all things, that we would see the opportunities that you lay before us to do good, to share with others. We recognize that we don't want to do these things because to give of ourselves, to give of our time, to give of our treasure. It reflects our trust in you. And it's easy to lose sight, Lord, that you're a good God, that you care for us and that you provide for us. So help us to live our lives in a way that demonstrates that. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.